welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. President Biden's national security strategy prioritizes China as, quote, the most consequential U.S. strategic competitor and the top pacing threat for the U.S. military. The ignition point for a hot conflict with the Chinese military would most likely be an invasion of Taiwan. But the war in Ukraine has rapidly reshaped how many strategists think about the modern battlefield, especially the use of drones, cyber, social media, and the importance of electronic warfare. What would a military confrontation over Taiwan look like? Find out we are speaking with retired Australian Major General Mick Ryan. Ryan is a frequent commenter on the future of warfare and is a 35-year veteran of the Australian Army, served in Iraq, Afghanistan. He is a graduate of the U.S. Marine Corps Command and Staff College, the USMC School of Advanced Warfare, and is an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also the author of the nonfiction book, War Transform, and most recently, the author of a new fiction book, White Sun War, The Campaign for Taiwan. Mick Ryan, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you. The book is great. I want to get into some of the larger issues that it raises, but first, just briefly talking about the book itself. It's in the vein of Admiral Stavridis and Elliot Ackerman's 2034, both of whom we've had on Hot Wash, or uh, it made me think of Peter Singer's Ghost Fleet, or even going back to Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising. It's a hypothetical war game told as narrative that doesn't take anything away from it. I found it very compelling. But why tell this story this way? Well, as you point out, there is a long history of senior military officers and analysts writing fiction about uh, potential future military scenarios. In fact, it goes way back to the 1870s. It was a, a British engineer officer who wrote the first military fiction called The Battle of Dorking in 1871. And what everyone has done since then is tried to influence uh, their peers. They've tried to influence senior military leaders. They've tried to influence politicians about uh, potential dangers and potential solutions to those dangers. And having just published uh, a non-fiction book, uh, War Transformed, that looked at these issues, I thought, well, why don't I try and reach a broader audience through fiction? It's what Peter Singer calls uh, blending up vegetables in your kid's chocolate milkshake. <laughs> um, it's about learning in a, a more accessible, more widely accessible, hopefully enjoyable form. And, you know, I, I hope people enjoy the book, but more importantly, I hope they learn something from it and it uh, causes them to ponder uh, their own responsibilities and, and the people they lead. So uh, unlike Clancy, who I think was a, a, a tabletop gamer and read a few too many issues of Jane's um, Defense Weekly, um, it, you, you have actual experience. Uh, you served in Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor. What about those experiences shaped how you imagine this story? I'll say all the officers in White Sun are are very well read. They're very professional. Um, a part of that, I'm sure, is expository. But but uh, the, most of the officers come off on both sides. Actually, looking, they they take their profession very seriously and understand that reading about other people's experiences is a part of what is required of them to become better officers and, and better soldiers. Uh, but Afghanistan comes up as a, a frequent point of contrast for the characters in the book. What about your personal experiences shaped how you told this story? 
Yeah, I think everyone's personal journey shapes the stories they tell, whether it's in, in books or just in the stories they, they tell their friends. Um, you know, firstly, I'd say like uh, Tom Clancy, I've probably read, read a few too many James magazines <laughs> as well, and uh, I certainly don't compare myself. He was a master storyteller. Um, but, you know, my, my personal journey uh, as an army officer started, you know, in the late 80s when not much was going on for army people around the world. Unless you were doing a few United Nations jobs, there wasn't much happening unless you were doing training and education. And the early part of my career really was focused on training, education, wargaming, these kind of things. And it was the wars that were spawned by 9-11 that really was a crucible for many officers and soldiers, airmen uh, and women, sailors of my generation. And, you know, we spent the good, better part of a decade or more going back and forth to hot, sandy places um, and learning that war had changed since the Gulf War of 91. We, we learned that it wasn't quite like World War II. And I think it was a very searing experience for individuals, for institutions and for societies more broadly, even though these weren't uh, wars where society was really mobilised. Um, and I do refer to Afghanistan quite a bit. Not so much, I mean, I served there, I commanded a task force there, but it was, it was more to differentiate uh, between that kind of war and the kind of war I think we'll see in Taiwan and that what we learned in Afghanistan may not actually prepare as well for some of the future conflicts we're in, some of the the tactics, some of the organisation, some of the technology, some of the leadership approaches may not be fit for purpose in future warfare. So the book really is a challenge to, yes, we learned a lot in those conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan and other places, but this is going to have some bits of that, but it's going to have some new things and we really need to think through what they might be. Thinking about Afghanistan and, and now Ukraine and, and, and the future with every war, there is that unexpected supply chain failure. Early on in Iraq, it took a while to figure out that vehicles needed to be up-armored because of IEDs. Ukraine, obviously, no one anticipated the, the consumption rate of artillery shells, let alone the rest of the technology. What is, for you, the projected supply chain failure in engagement like this over Taiwan? Well, I think there'll be a few very interesting logistic issues, and it's a topic you know, I get into in the book. But I think you know, the early days of the war, you would probably see the Chinese try and take out war stocks that are located in theatre. I mean, that will be a very high priority for them because they know, unlike Ukraine, which has Poland next door, which is both a big supporter of Ukraine and a massive transshipment site, it's then thousands of miles back to the US industrial heartland for reprovisioning of anything for this war. So geography uh, plays a different role in a conflict over Taiwan than it does in Ukraine. I mean, it goes without saying. Um, the Pacific is a really big place. <laughs> and if you've ever flown right. over it frequently like I have, or if you fought across it like the US Navy and US Marines did in the Second World War, it takes a really long time to get anywhere and the infrastructure is very basic. So, you know, it was for this reason I, you know, I came up with this concept of these strategic bastions of establishing protected logistic and repair hubs in several locations that would provide a, an operational level supply and, and recovery and reinforcement hub that was protected against uh, some of these long-range threats that the Chinese pose. I think when most people think about drones, and, and drones obviously in AI play a huge role in the book, and in 
you're thinking about the future. When most people think about drones, they they either think of the massive fixed wing long range drones like Reapers or Predators that the U.S. excels at and and really defined the the global war on terror, or you think of the small commercially available drones like a DJI Mavic that they're using all over Ukraine for for ISR. China dominates that commercial industry and that innovation. America does big and expensive really well. China is really ahead in terms of small and disposable. Does that asymmetry concern you? It does. I mean, that's a choice we made. But I think that, you know, we need all these kinds of autonomous systems from the small and disposable up to some of the more exquisite, expensive systems. It's not an either or proposition and you need everything in between whether they're armed or or not and whether they're in the air or on the ground or at sea. I mean um, you know there's no reason why just as with the CHIPS app the the US couldn't have a drones act where we disrupt the DJI business model. You know they're, they're the kind of things that are strategic thinking and why should we allow the Chinese to have the lead in all these technologies? I mean it's only because we've allowed them to. Um, so, you know, I, I think we need to have a look at autonomous systems across the full breadth, across who produces them. More countries need to produce their own autonomous systems and their own loitering munitions. Um, a lot of countries do do it. They just don't scale it very well. Australia produces multiple, but we don't scale it very well, including cardboard drones that mm. we ship to Ukraine. Mm. Um, but for me, uh, when I think about drones, I actually don't think about the technology much as I think about how we're going to integrate these systems into new forms of tactics, new forms of organisations, new forms of operational theory. And I think that's an area where we are deficit in the West. I think um, we're really focused on the technology competition with China and and the the physical numbers competition with China, but the best ideas about warfighting and strategic competition is an area that I think we can afford to invest more in because one, it's cheap, and two, it ensures that you're applying cleverly all those physical aspects that you're investing so much money in. One of the characters in the book says something like, the Americans want to keep a person in the decision loop in combat, and that ultimately that will be their undoing because the pace of battle, once you introduce AI, will be too fast for humans. Is there a doctrinal difference between how we expect the PLA to use automation in the kill chain versus the U.S. and other Western forces. Yeah, I mean the Pentagon has very cl- has put out uh, pretty clear policies on the use of lethal autonomous systems. It's, it's updated them, I think, in the last year or so. So it's very clear how the U.S., which really leads thinking on this, I think, uh, applies lethal autonomous systems on the battlefield and beyond. Um, The Chinese, there's no evidence that they're thinking that way. Indeed, they see it as a way to take decisions out of the hands of humans who they see as less trustworthy than machines. I mean, humans can be corrupt. Humans cannot agree with the CCP. Machines don't have that choice. So there is a very different way of looking at the value of autonomous systems in the PLA and the Chinese system uh, more broadly. Um, But really doesn't assign the same value of human decision-making and um, or autonomy uh, that they do to the machines that they expect to help them fight their future wars. I think these ideas get all, they get conflated. 
there's drones that are essentially remote viewing or remote action platforms. And then there's AI or there's quantum computing or parts of the electronic warfare spectrum that, that are not really part of past conflicts as, as much. You've painted this picture in the book of really coming up with a kind of machine combined arms approach, a kind of a, a layered approach of human machine hybrid units. Is that predictive or is that prescriptive on your part? Are you are you trying to push uh, the ally Western uh, nations in that direction? Or do you think that the thinking is is actually on the right path for creating that kind of integration? I think it's coming. I, I, I think there are a couple of issues with a lot of the thinking in Western institutions about this. Firstly, um, we are seeing the scale of autonomous systems in military institutions probably beyond what some people imagine. Uh, in most military institutions in the West, this, the ratio of humans to autonomous systems is still about 50 or 100 to 1. You, you look at pure numbers. Well, that ratio is going to flip. going to flip pretty soon. Um, and not only are we going to see a greater ratio of autonomous systems, these autonomous systems are machines that we don't use. They'll be machines that we partner with. Now, that's a fundamental shift in how we think about uh, machines in human organisations. Since we were cavemen and women, uh, tools have been things that we've used and been the masters of. These autonomous systems with some of the clever AIs are now things that we will partner with. And none of our training systems, none of our leadership models, none of our organisations are designed around humans partnering machines. They're all designed around humans using machines. And for some, that might be, oh, that's just a, that's a small thing. It's actually a fairly significant shift in how you think about war. And it's certainly a shift in how we think about the ethics of who and what should kill other human beings at what times and what places. What does that look like, practically speaking, on the on the battlefield? Draw, draw that distinction. Well, it looks like a much emptier battlefield, um, first and foremost. If we have chart the um, growing lethality since the first Industrial Revolution, I mean, Trevor Dupuy charted the lethality versus dispersion of military forces over the last 200 years. Um, you know, you've seen a greater dispersion of military forces in all domains over the last 100 years or so just to cope with the enhanced precision and lethality of, of the battle space. You, I think you're going to see that occur uh, even more and that there will be some forms of close combat, not all forms, but some forms of, of close combat that I think might be beyond human comprehension. It will just happen uh, so quickly and so violently. So that's the other thing is beyond the emptying battle space is the faster battle space is that some engagements will be over very quickly and we need to being able to, we need to start thinking about tactics in microseconds, not tactics in minutes and minutes and hours. Now that's not going to be all combat. I don't think we can generalize that every military activity will be over in microseconds. I just don't think that's true. Uh, because you have to be able to sustain operations over time and you can't always be operating at super speeds. Uh, but I think there will be times uh, at decisive points in campaigns where we need to be able to operate like this. It's going to challenge current chains of command. It's going to compress them. It's going to force tired leaders to make faster decisions under more ambiguous circumstances. And I think too that um, it's not going to deliver us 
the transparency or the certainty of the battlefield. Indeed, the more systems that are out there, it might become more ambiguous and more uncertain. We've certainly seen that in Ukraine, where despite the fact that there's videos being tweeted 24-7 about various things, being able to see lots of things isn't the same as knowing lots of things. And the fog and friction of war is just as relevant in the 21st century as it was when Clausewitz developed that concept in the 19th. I was listening to somebody recently talking about because so much on the Ukrainian side, they're using commercial drones and you know many of them are buying them themselves or supplying them themselves, that, that deconflicting on operations is a huge issue and that as much as 50% of the drone casualties are are friendly fire that you know there's no no way to really identify uh if you see something coming back from a mission whether that's a russian drone you know now with both sides engaged on the drone front it, it's the the skies are literally buzzing with 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 different devices and it's very very difficult to iff you know a dji drone coming in yeah that's right and you know to compound that Pretty significant challenge is both sides have really doubled down on electronic warfare on the battlefield. I mean, right. everyone's been so focused on space and cyber in the last few years, we forgot the role of electronic warfare at the tactical and sometimes operational level. And this war has brought it out again. And, you know, both the Russians and the Ukrainians have done well at it, but they've also had problems with uh, electronic fratricide, including with their own drones and own aircraft and stuff. Which I guess leads me to this whole notion of counter-autonomy. It's been a lagging capability in this war. I think the ability to destroy autonomous systems has not been as robust as the ability to use them. Um, we're playing fast catch-up, right. and in many respects, I think counter-autonomy has to be a capability that's used as a cost-imposition strategy against those who want to use mass drones. Just out of my own ignorance, are there examples of drones being deployed on the battlefield in a, in a swarm arrangement as opposed to individual drones dangling a, a makeshift grenade to drop down the hatch of a, of a T-72? I don't think we're really seeing swarming behavior yet. I mean, swarming is different to mass use of drones because in swarms, there's semi-intelligent behavior that you know governs and allows them to adapt what they're doing throughout a mission and they can talk with each other and share situational awareness. I mean, we see a lot of that for major sporting events. Um, I don't think we've really seen it in the war yet. I think it's inevitable that we will. Right. Uh, but the closest approximation of it is these the Russian mass use of Iranian drones, but that's not swarming. That's just right. using large numbers at the same time. Right. I mean, if you can program drones for a New Year's Eve celebration to spell something out in the end of the sky, you know, I mean, how, how long is it before uh, you, you create a, a, a fixed targeting solution for a group that's yeah. moving on mass and relating to each other in real time? I think, it, you know, that, that is inevitable, that, it, that will come, but a lot of those displays we see, whether it's at the Olympics or football games and these kind of things, I mean, they're, they're commercial, there's not strong security on the drones or, or the network that um, guides them. And, I, you know, I saw a recent 
uh, activity in Melbourne, Australia, where they used a drone swarm and about 10 to 15% of the drones ended up in the harbour because uh, they either lost they <laughs> right. lost network connectivity or something like right. that. So, right. you know, the, the idea is there, the foundational technology is there, but there's a range of hardening and network security issues right. that I think will need to be addressed uh, for the military application of swarms. Well, and again, and, and I mean, obviously I think your previous answer that it needs to be both and. But again, this seems to point back to the what Ukraine has really shown us that the price point of the attrition of the system is a huge factor that, you know, if you've got a $2,000 drone versus a, I don't even know what the price tag is on a, on a, on a Reaper. I mean, they have different missions and they, and they fulfill different roles, but those are really different production pathways that that the industrial complex has has pursued. Yeah, I mean, this gets to the notion of attributable capability that I know the US Air Force and the Army certainly talk about. And it's a necessary and unavoidable capability now. Um, You know, it's not just cheap. It's fast to produce and simple to produce. And more importantly, it's very simple to train people on it. Often, one of the hardest things with these really exquisite systems is the training liability that comes with all those who either operate or maintain or, or analyse the data they provide. You know, these FPV racing drones that the Ukrainians use, right. they strap an RPG round to it. I mean, there's no training liability. You take it out of the box, you put the headset on, you pick up the controller and you are off. Um, you know, that is revolutionary for military systems that want to have these fairly uh, long and exquisite training regimes. So I think, you know, it's not just about cheapness. I mean, it's about transforming training regimes in military institutions. And we need short training regimes because if we ever have to mobilise and expand to forces 10 times what we have, the, the long, uh, risk-adverse and exquisite training uh, cycles that we have at the moment are not going to be fit for purpose. Talk about what the electronic warfare space looks like in this hypothetical environment. I, I mean, if everyone's, even if it's encrypted, it, there's still, you've, you've basically got a battlefield that's just chock full of radio emissions coming out everywhere and that popping your head up, so to speak, even if it's, even if it's a burst technology, you know, could basically be the difference between you know, getting getting artillery rained down on your head afterwards. So talk about how how in a space that's full of autonomous vehicles and more interconnectivity, how does that electronic warfare aspect of the battle space really change? Well, at first I'd say it should give us a whole new appreciation for those civil authorities that do spectrum deconfliction <laughs> in our normal right. lives. I mean, right, right. cities are full of electromagnetic emissions and these people do this quietly without a lot of recognition, but it just all seems to work for it. So, you know, we should recognise right. um, that as a, as a monumental achievement. But, you know, the, before this war, the Russians were recognised as having one of the finest tactical electronic warfare capabilities on Earth. I mean, probably only the Chinese would match them. Um, and it was a real surprise early in the war that they didn't use their electronic warfare a lot, but they did use it. They certainly used it uh, to shut down um, the Ukrainian air defence network for a few days or at least significantly degrade it. And used cyber to take down their, their um, satellite network. That's right. That's right. So, but, you know, they quickly learned, hey, this, this wasn't going to be a fast coup de main taking Kiev in 10 days. It was going to be a combat operation. So they learned, they adapted their electronic warfare 
And now they're using the full range of uh, electronic warfare capabilities, you know, to collect information, to triangulate for targeting, to, um, to jam communications at critical times of the enemy, uh, to, to jam the link between drones and their operators or to spoof the drones to land uh, in places where they want them to land. So there's a whole range of functions that we'd either forgotten or hadn't practised a lot in electronic warfare that the Russians and Ukrainians are now using. You know, this, this dimension of war alone is really worth close study. Um, and one of the trends in electronic warfare has been that it's moving from large, expensive truck-mounted systems to smaller, uh, human-mounted systems just because it's easy to pick up where they are and to target them quickly. So both the Ukrainians and Russians are moving to smaller, uh, dismounted systems that make them a lot more nimble on the battlefield and once they're detected, they can get out of dodge far more quickly. I mean, one of the, one of the transformative elements of this war is the combination of uh, electronic warfare, uh, the meshing of civil and military uh, sensors uh, and fires is that the detection to destruction gap has closed from, you know, probably 10 minutes when I was commanding a combined arms brigade to about a minute now. That is really significant if you're on the battlefield. Yeah. Very significant. And very significant if you're designing future forces. I don't think it's any secret you especially on Twitter you're you're regularly vocal about your your support for the Ukrainians and and encouraging most of the western powers to be all in to make sure that Ukraine prevails in the war against Russia. Are you concerned about Starlink as a single point of failure for so many of their systems, uh, this a commercial uh, industry with a singular person at its head, Elon Musk, who has weighed in mostly with Russian perspectives on on resolving the conflict. Does, does that concern you as a point of failure in, in, in the whole Ukraine effort? Yeah, it, I think it it concerns me and a lot of people. I mean, um, you know, it's no secret that because of electronic warfare, um, VHF and UHF communications are not used as widely as Starlink is now. Um, so that accessible satellite communications capability provided by Starlink has been lifesaving for the Ukrainians. There's, there's no two ways about that at the tactical and, and, and higher levels. Um, you know, the fact that it is owned and controlled by someone who regularly sprouts Russian narratives um, proudly, I think, in some respects, uh, should be a concern, not just to me, but people like the US government. Um, and I know he has lots of contracts with the US government for rockets, but um, sometimes you've got to look at the character of people who are running these organisations and just wonder, you know, is it in our national interest to use these particular capabilities if there's a chance we may not actually have uh, the security that goes with it that we would like. So, no, I, I think Starlink is really interesting case study. We're kind of stuck with it at the moment, but um, I certainly hope that there might be some alternative to it in the future. Again, that may be a departure point between Ukraine and a hypothetical Taiwan situation. Obviously, the battle space would be controlled in a different way, I think, by, by DOD satellites um, and connectivity. I mean, think of mm. how, how does, especially, and, and again, the Vast stretches of the specific have to have that capability to be connected with that force. How how is that different with Taiwan versus just compare and contrast the need for 
that communication infrastructure in Ukraine versus in Taiwan? I don't think the challenge is any different, actually, because as as sophisticated and as vast as the U.S. satellite constellation is, even the U.S. has acknowledged that it's very vulnerable. I mean, the U.S. Air Force in particular in, in recent years has talked a lot about Chinese experimentation, about blinding, about destruction, about electronic disabling of uh, satellites in on, what we call on-orbit warfare, which I write about in the book. Um, yeah, Space so Force comes I, I off very well in this book. I think it, they, they should sell the book in the gift shop at the uh, Space Force Academy. The Guardians, Guardians look good in this. So, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I wanted to focus on some newer services, <laughs> but you know, um, you know, space-based uh, imagery, communication, and precision navigation and timing capabilities are extraordinarily vulnerable if you have an adversary who's spent two decades developing weapon systems to uh, make that satellite constellation less capable. Now, that we shouldn't underrate uh, the US space community's ability to understand those and work around some of those weaknesses. I mean, they've been in this game for, you know, over half a century from, and longer. But I think even for the US, they will probably look at a high-low mix of satellite capabilities with the exquisite as well as the small, cheap and attritable um, Starlink kind of capabilities, just the same as they will with drones. And again, that ability that Musk pioneered with reusable launch vehicles that can dramatically speed up the cycle of launching new satellites, that would be huge in a conflict where you could have attrition in your space-based network. It would be crucial to constantly be replenishing any gaps in that chain. Yeah, I think, you know, when he, the ultimate size of this constellation, I forget the exact number, it's something like 14 or 15,000 satellites. I mean, that provides a level of coverage and assurance in your communications. It's pretty significant and unprecedented. But, you know, it, it doesn't mean you only have to use them for communications. I mean, precision navigation and timing is an essential element modern operations, how weapons right. work, how battle command systems function. And if you can use an assured low orbit satellite system to assist your PNT requirements, uh, rather than the, um, I think it's geostationary orbit, that the GPS satellites, that's another important function that might be able to be fulfilled and get around the jamming of GPS guided weapons that we've seen in Ukraine. So let's talk about Australia a little bit. Uh, when you lay out the order of battle in the book, one character makes some pretty harsh assessments of Australia's contributions, basically referring to their assets as missile sponges. Uh, and that's about it. What is Australia's strategic value in a Pacific alliance coming to the aid of Taiwan against China? Well, I think if you look back to the previous Pacific War, it'll be pretty much the same. We occupy pretty useful real estate um, that's you know south of the key theatre. Um, it's big, there's lots of space, um, and I think that's been recognised over the last few years. You know, even the recent Osmin communique discussed the establishment of large logistic hubs in Australia for the US, not just basing. Um, and I would expect that Was that, that, that kind of the influence for your bastion uh, concept that's in the No, no, this came out way after my bastion idea. Oh, well, they got it from you, clearly. To see that, <laughs> yeah, cl clearly. Um, <laughs> someone's read my book. Um, probably, probably on the American side, not on the Australian. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it is a massive logistics aircraft carrier. You know, in the Second World War, there are upwards of nine hundred thousand American 
soldiers and airmen based in Australia at any one time. There were submarine fleets based out of Australia, the whole lot. And I think we could see something similar when it comes to Taiwan. And, you know, um, very few militaries in the world have bases that are able to uh, quadruple or uh, move up the number of people on them by an order of magnitude. These are the reasons why more investment in infrastructure, training areas, logistics are required now. So you can quickly flow in people. I, I think it's inevitable. I mean, we're far enough to be out of range of most Chinese systems, but close enough to be a separate axis of advance into Taiwan or other places in a um, contingency where China uh, decides to do something catastrophic in our region. So what are the limiting factors for Australia preparing for a scenario like this? China is a huge investor in extractive industries in Australia and, and I mean, acro- mm. across the board. What is the level of Chinese influence to politically or socially drive a wedge between Australian and U.S. policy on Taiwan? Um, I, I think 10 years ago, they might have had an opportunity. That opportunity is gone now. Um, some of the things they've done here have been just diplomatically and strategically idiotic. And it's, they've painted themselves China, you're in talking a really about, negative Australia. China. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I'd never suggest we're strategically idiotic. Um, you know, they've done things like paid off parliamentarian who got caught, which changed all our laws about foreign influence. Um, you know, the ambassador made all the, the 14 demands about what Austra- how Australians should think, which was just thrown out the door. Um, the ambassador did a speech at the National Press Club who talked about, you know, when they take back Taiwan, they will be re-educating people. You know, a whole range of really abhorrent statements. And it's seen, if you have a look at annual surveys by the Lowy Institute in Sydney, um, you know, the view of China over the last decade has gone from about 80% positive to about 20% positive. There's no coming back from that particularly given China's behaviour in our region, its coercion, its military operations, its thuggish and uh, bullying behaviour against us and many others. So their opportunity to put a wedge between Australia and the US is very limited. And even the economic coercion they tried over the last couple of years, they're the ones who had to actually come and say, let's let's not do this because it was hurting them more than it hurt us. I I mean, Australia spends what? 2% 2% GDP on defense. I mean, it's not nothing. I mean, it's more than what, Germany, mm. more than Japan. Uh, it, it would get them into NATO. Um, but um, mm. <laughs> uh, but I think people are still somewhat frustrated, especially with the AUKUS deal. Uh, there, there was a lot of questions about whether those dollars were being best spent in, in, on the subs and in, in, in the way it, it kind of shook out. Uh, would you like to see Australia spending its dollars either differently or uh, increasing that amount or redirecting it towards more specific force expansion, either naval or, or this kind of uh, uh, autonomous and drone integration? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we do spend, I think it's about 2.2% of GDP on defence, um, you know, which is fine for the circumstances as they were 10 or 20 years ago, but the world's changed. Um, you know, our government has for the last year or two been talking about the most dangerous strategic circumstances in our country's history. So the rhetoric's there, but there's been no dollars to follow. Indeed, the Defence Strategic Review of this year and the Defence Budget flatline defence spending, which is, um, it's hard to 
kind of credit when you see Japan, which is doubled the amount of GDP it spends on defence, but more importantly is engaged, I think, in a very clever um, strategic communications uh, campaign with its own people and its neighbours about why it's doing that and why it's necessary. And it's something that I think Australian governments generally are very poor at, it, at communicating with the Australian people about the need for enhanced defence spending. So I would like to see more spending, but I don't see any prospect of it uh, at this point in time, unfortunately. Um, the AUKUS deal with the submarines, I mean, clearly, who doesn't want nuclear submarines? Uh, but it is of such a magnitude in spending that it, it might, you know, eat the rest of the Defence Force. It might end right. up that the Australian Defence Force in 20 years is five Virginia-class submarines two soldiers and a dog. I mean, (laughs) that's the magnitude of spending. Um, And there has been no real uh, discussion by the government or Department of Defence on the opportunity cost of that. It's a $360 billion project. The Columbia-class project uh, the US is running is half of that and will deliver more submarines. So, you know, we should be asking questions. And whilst I'm a huge supporter of the Alliance and, and AUKUS, extraordinary expenditures require extraordinary justification, and I'd like to see that. So I think that my impression, you know, the book primarily focuses on drones and AI and the ground war in this hypothetical conflict. There's not as much discussion about the naval conflict, Um, but I feel like the current think tank political appropriations discussions in the real world are are kind of the inverse of that, mostly ink. Spilled has been over the size of the Navy, the balance of blue water versus yep. coral, um, which has also had its own share of problems. Um, among the people that are thinking and writing and influencing the U.S. Congress about this, is, is that your perception that the, the focus is really on what's the right uh, you know, construction of naval forces versus this and that this is really a gap? where people are not not mm. doing enough talking and thinking and planning for. Absolutely. It's a massive gap. I mean, there's some assumption that this is going to be a, a naval and air campaign. Uh, and my question is, okay, what next? <laughs> Whether you win or lose, what next? Um, and, you know, it's almost like the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Okay, we've taken Baghdad. What next? Um, and who's thinking about that what next? Well, there's lots of green bits right. in the Pacific as well as blue bits. Um, and by inclination, I'm someone who doesn't like to move with the crowd. I, I like to create my own niche. So, you know, I, I think there was a gap here in thinking about what happens if you have to fight in Taiwan. It's a scenario. It's not the scenario. It's one of many potential futures. And I thought, well, let's explore that. So I'm not saying there won't be great naval battles or great aerial battles with long-range drones or missiles and these kind of things. I, I think we're going to see all of it. We're going to see all five domains at the same time operating at speed. And I wanted to have a think about, well, the land domain is one that's not being paid attention to. Let's have a think about that. The other aspect that's missing from the book, or not missing, but is, is I think you've, you've made a either strategic or tactical decision to, to minimize, is not really taking on the escalation issue this, in the same way yep. that, that, that it's really a prime constraint or a prime driver of at least the White House in, in their policy about what systems go where. Um, how do you think about nuclear ex- escalation in, in Taiwan? 
No, I thought about it a lot, actually, um, probably more than it comes out. Um, and, you know, I, I did include a, a nuclear incident, right, uh, right. A, a, an EMT, and that was that was kind of my um, strawman for the, the nuclear issue, and you saw a very quick response right. out of the leadership in Beijing when that happened. Right. Um, you know, I think it's an important issue, but, you know, if it had got into a nuclear exchange, the book would be over in five pages. So there's there's a storytelling element to this. Well, spoilers. I mean, there are other some of these other yeah. books that we've <laughs> talked about that where where that actually features rather largely. Yeah. So I, 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 you yeah. know, if people want a really dark and depressing summer, I, I recommend they read this and then read 2034 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I did think about this a lot and, you know, it came down to the fact that, okay, I, I want to tell a story about ground combat and in some respects I have to kind of relax out some of these uh, other issues to be able to tell that story, not ignoring them, right. not saying they're not part of it. Right. And it's also a recognition that any story about war is only ever a partial story. There's no such thing as any book, any history, any story that sees the entire picture. So, you know, it's kind of a metaphor for, you know, how humans actually experience war, which is just one bit uh, that's part of a, a much larger uh, historical story. What do you think officers and strategists in the PLA would take away from your book? Uh, well, firstly, I, I hope they take away we're thinking about this and we'd like them to wake up every morning and look at the mirror and go, not today. Um, I hope they take away that um, the price of miscalculation over something like this is extraordinarily high. It would be catastrophic. Um, I hope they take away that a lot of countries, Japan, the US in particular, uh, have a pretty strong-willed and very capable and know how to fight wars. and. You know, uh, you know, the U.S. through its history has demonstrated the ability to do that pretty ruthlessly and dispose of entire countries uh, like Japan and Germany in in the course of that, including the use of nuclear weapons. So this, for a Chinese officer, a Chinese leader, is not something to be taken lightly, and they should never underestimate the will and the capability of those who might be opposing them, like the Russians did in, in Ukraine. Um, ultimately, it's, this isn't Catch-22 as an anti-war book, but, you know, there are some anti-war themes in here. I don't want this to happen. I don't think anyone does. And hopefully this would act as some kind of intellectual deterrent to PLA officers thinking that invading Taiwan is a good idea. And if I didn't say it at the top, I'll say it here. I think that this discussion is not in any way an endorsement that we should or we inevitably would engage in a war with China. I think that it's exactly this kind of Sivupakum parabellum kind of thinking that is necessary precisely to, to, to avoid it. Uh, so if we've got a, a planner at DOD or an officer or a congressional staffer who deals with China listening to this conversation, what do you want their final takeaway? Uh, their final takeaway uh, has to be this isn't going to look like a war that we've fought in the past. There will be elements of it, but um, it's not going to be our past experience of war. It's going to be different. Uh, we need to be prepared to be surprised and we need to be prepared to undertake uh, a marathon, uh, not a sprint in this. Is This is not the kind of thing that will be over quickly. Preparing for short wars is a route to failure. 
and that the DOD, I don't think, can do the deterrence and preparation for such a conflict by itself. It has to work with the intelligence community, it has to work with allies, and importantly, it has to work with industry on a whole range of sustainment and industrial issues if we are to be able to deter uh, this kind of contingency in the Western Pacific. I will add that my takeaway from, from reading it and thinking about it with you is that it is one thing to spin up some factories to put steel plates on Jeeps. It's one thing to revive old 155 millimeter <laughs> artillery shell factories. It is a whole nother thing to stand up new technology, new industries. And as you point out, really training, that is a really long lead time uh, and that uh, our, our defense industry has not shown that it can come up with systems either cheaply or quickly. So yeah. uh, better to think about this today, right? Don't, not, not to put it off. Yeah. Well, as I say, the best time to mobilize was yesterday. The book is White Sun War, the campaign for Taiwan. Mick Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope we get a chance to speak again. Thanks, John. It's great to talk to you. And I hope we get to speak again as well. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. We've also just launched a Friday digest called Hot and Cold, with the week's most read articles and some that are flying under the radar. So be sure to look for that. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.